Hello and welcome to Clever People Doing Things. I'm Steve Cross and once again I am in the basement of UCL's Psychology and Language Sciences building in a perfectly soundproofed room. It's 9am when we're recording this podcast. One of the nice things is this building is completely deserted. I don't know if this is 9am. I don't know if it's because exams have now finished and everybody's just given up for the summer or gone on conferences. There seems to be no one around other than us, which means that in this airtight room we might all die and no one will ever find us. Today I'm joined by Nikki Smalley. Nikki, do you want to say hello to our listeners? Hello, everybody. And uh, Nikki's been doing a fantastic project while she was doing her PhD. And Nikki, you've handed in your PhD and you've had your Viva, but you haven't yet graduated. Is that right? Uh, that's true. I'm going to go to the binders today and pick up my my thesis oh. so that I can hand it in. Okay. One of the big questions I know people: what what does it cost to bind a thesis? So you print it yourself? Do you print it yourself? Uh, actually, um, because I'm lazy, I'm getting them to print it. Okay. So they print it and they bind it. And yeah. and what does that cost? Uh, it this in this particular binders, I think it costs forty five pounds. No, thirty five pounds. Oh, right. For printing and binding, and my page my thesis is three hundred pages long. I'm getting it double sided. Yeah. Save paper. Yeah. That's 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 not a bad deal at all, because in my head it always costs like 150 quid. I think it costs more if you get hardbound. Oh right, but okay. But the um, UCL specifies softbound, so yeah, that's nice yeah, of them. Yeah. That's nice of them. I have a hardbound copy of mine sitting on the... my shelves at home. Never oh. looked at it. <laughs> so uh, we've started talking about the, your thesis already. So one of the things that um, I was hoping you could tell our listeners was about the research that you did while you were here, and you know how you spent those happy three or four years. <laughs> Uh, very happy years, blissful. Um, so my uh, my research was on the use of slang and contemporary urban language in different kinds of creative writing in Sweden and in the UK. And I was kind of doing a comparative study and also looking at translation. Um, so lots and lots and lots of different things. Every time I tell anybody the title, they say, that's very niche. And I say... <laughs> Have you ever heard of a PhD that wasn't niche? Yeah, I'd say that's the point of a PhD. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, looking... So, um, a lot of what I did was, you know, text analysis and stuff like that. But also, um, I did a survey with translators um, who'd worked with the kind of text that I was looking at. And, and then I wrote about it all. <laughs> and that was a really fun process. So what what kind of texts yes. were you working on? I mean, were you were you looking at things our listeners might have heard of? So um, some of the things that I was so some of the UK stuff that I was looking at, people probably will have heard of. There's a book called Pigeon English by Stephen Kelman mm-hmm. about a, a boy, an eight year old boy who comes from Ghana uh, to live in London in a house in a housing estate in Peckham. It's kind of based on the uh, the the death of or. It's based on the case of Damalola Taylor, who was uh, killed by some local gang members. Um, it, it uses language in a really interesting way. The the boy has a kind of a, like a special language that he's devised for himself, and the title refers to the fact that there's a pigeon who he makes friends with, and there was there was lots of interesting things to analyse basically about the way that language was used to suggest identity and things like that what else another another london book called foxy tea which we might not have heard of but um was quite hyped when it came out by a guy called tony white yeah who um you heard of it weirdly i've met tony he have was you? writer he was, in residence he was writer in residence yeah. at ucl and i kept meaning to write to him and i didn't 
anyway so he yeah so so that book is set in east london so all of these are kind of you know basically about how london is or how language is very closely connected to location but also kind of identity of individuals and groups of people and so on uh, and then in terms of the Swedish stuff, people might not have heard of it, but there's um, an author called Jonas Hassan-Kamiri, who is very, very, very uh, famous and popular in Sweden um, and has a couple of his books been translated into English. And uh, there's also he's a playwright as well. And quite a lot of his plays have been performed in London and in New York and places like that, Chicago. So he's he's actually really one to discover. He's a fantastic writer. And he his first novel was about a teenage boy who um sets out to uncover the uh the Swedish integration plan, which is a conspiracy right. that he um that he sees in, in Swedish society. Basically. Um all really fun stuff. And I was also writing about rappers, so JME, if anybody knows him. Of course. He's my favourite. So did you did you come to any conclusions about about rappers' work? Um, well, okay. So one thing that I found was that um, lots of writers in Sweden that I was looking at um, talked very directly about the influence that rap had had on their writing, and they had clearly used rap in some way as a source for kind of their creative inspiration in terms of language. So it sounds like you were doing, you know, some really rich and interesting research. Mm. And then a few years ago, you decided that you were going to go out and connect members of the public mm. with some of the stuff that you were doing. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the the project you chose to do? Okay, so um, so part of so part of where it came from in the first place, the, the project was that um, my funding was linked to doing some public engagement work and doing some um, increasing the impact of Swedish literature in okay. the UK. Which is perfect for you because you were working on a whole set of Swedish books. Exactly, yeah. exactly. This was kind of something that was set up by various different kind of cultural agencies and, and people in, in Sweden in collaboration with people at UCL. And And so I thought one way to do this would be to work directly with readers in the UK to kind of find out what they were interested in, what kind of Swedish books they liked reading, what kind of, why people read Swedish books, yeah. but also to directly encourage people to read Swedish books and to get them talking about Swedish books and to kind of spark people's imaginations, basically, about Swedish literature. Because at the time, this whole Nordic noir kind of Scandi crime thing was really blowing up, or had been really blowing up for a year or so. It seemed like a really interesting point at which to capitalise on that and kind of take it outside of the crime fiction yeah, 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 thing there's... and make it just make diversify it a little bit and maybe give people who were into Nordic noir broader kind of understanding of like the kinds of literature that are published in Sweden. So I set up a book club with the help of the Train and Engage programme at, at UCL. So Nikki, I know that your book club wasn't a normal book club. You didn't just read the book and talk about what you thought it meant. But you had a, a bunch of special and different things that you did with people who came along. Well, obviously we were reading books in English, hmm. but they were Swedish books. So has anybody heard of Wallander? For yeah. instance, okay. So the uh, the BBC uh, TV series Wallander by with Kenneth Branagh. That's yeah. it, isn't it? Well, the name Wallander is an anglicism of the of the Swedish name Valander. And this was something that was quite interesting when we were when we were reading the books. This kept coming up again and again. You know, we'd be talking about a place in which the book was set, or we'd be talking about 
um, a person and it would become clear that like people have been reading with the wrong kind of voices you know oh, you know right, what I okay. mean yeah so we went through the books and we we talked a lot about language and we talked a lot about translation but we also talked specifically about names and pronunciation about how the Swedish language differs or is similar to English um, and so that that element of it was quite was quite interesting because it, you know, when you read a book, you read about a culture. Even if a book is translated, it will still bear hallmarks of yeah. Swedish language. Yeah. And kind of talking about that was something that seemed really interesting to people, actually, because they, a lot of people didn't really, had never really thought about translation and how there are just subtle, subtle differences, things that you don't necessarily notice. But for instance, if I read a Swedish book in translation, I can see... I yep. can see the Swedish language in there, but somebody reading English wouldn't necessarily see it. So presumably, I mean, you you speak and read Swedish. Yeah. So were some of these books that you were re- giving to your book club in translation where you'd read the original version? Quite a few of them, yeah. And so yeah. are other points where you think that translation has actually added something or has taken away, you know, I can hear the voice of the translator in here as well as this being a neutral conversion mm. from one language to another? That's a really interesting question. I think the idea of... The voice of the translator is not necessarily kind of foregrounded in books. When you read book book reviews, they, they might mention the translator in a smooth translation by John Smith or whatever. Although there was one there was one particular one where the translator had um had used Scottish slang because she lives in Scotland. Yeah. And some people kind of said, Oh, that's weird to have a Scottish word in there. Was the Scottish I, slang standing in for something else? Yeah, like reading reading the translation, you could see that that the translator had set out to capture that slang, but because her idiolect, her yeah. you know her own her own language, her own way of speaking is Scottish, it was natural for her to use Scottish slang. Why wouldn't it be? But for us in London, it kind of added a, a different different dimension. Mm-hmm. Somehow, it kind of made it seem foreign, even though it was in English. So where did you hold it? So I held it in. Well, actually, I held it in a Swedish cafe called Fika uh, in Brick Lane. I was kind of aiming for young people who were kind of culturally aware and interested in stuff. Maybe had some idea of what Sweden was. Maybe had visited Sweden before, but were not sort of deeply entrenched in in Swedish culture. So I distributed these flyers, and then like slowly the emails started trickling in. Oh, and uh, and. I think we started off with about 12, maybe 10 or 12 people. Mm-hmm. And over the course, over the year and a half that it ran, it went from from about 10 people to about 14 to about six. And then sometimes we only had one or two. Yeah. But then the, I think the average number was about eight, which is right. really, really good. You can't run a book club with 14 people. No, because, no, no. Uh, I mean, who's going to decide who gets to speak when? And too many opinions. you'll end up with some people not being able to hear the conversation down the end and yeah. so on. So uh, so I learned from this that eight is a, eight is the ideal number, but you need to have a few kind of a few in reserve because the same eight people won't always necessarily be able to come. Uh, I had a Facebook page for it and I kind of advertised it to friends of mine as well. I set up a blog on which I kind of posted the discussions that we'd had in the meetings in order to sort of broaden the reach of it basically and to hopefully kind of bring more people into the conversation from who who weren't able to come to the meetings themselves and that actually was really i, I got i got a lot of hits on the blog and, oh, yeah. and there were i didn't really get that many comments or anything like that i think i think that's quite a maybe it's quite a difficult thing to actually get people to engage oh incredibly hard on yeah, the yeah. internet uh, unless it's 
the Guardian comments page or something. Sure. <laughs> Pages getting seen by hundreds of thousands of people yeah. with 20 comments on the bottom. Um, but like, you know, we, we really, there were like thousands and thousands of hits from all over the world. Brilliant. It felt like it was doing something really interesting. I know. And, and the conversations that we had in the group were really incredibly rich, actually. And, and I really felt like the people and the feedback that I got from people you know, they, they'd really like been quite inspired by it and people kind of went off and would tell me later, oh, I've found this book and I've been reading this one. Yeah. And I still sometimes get emails from members saying, oh, I've been reading this amazing book. Amazing. So it's quite nice to think that you do your project and then there's real change in the way that people behave yeah. and live their yeah. lives. And I mean, yeah, maybe it was only 10 people or something, but, but I actually really feel like with that kind of project where it's sustained, there's a lot of potential to have a kind of long-lasting... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Impact and you know really kind of do something in the imagination of those of those people. And with books, that's basically what it's about, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the most exciting thing. Fantastic. So, um, what are you up to now? So, actually, now I'm a publicist for a publishing company. Oh, perfect. I just started my job four weeks ago. I went to Japan and Korea. Nice. And uh, when I was there, I found out that I'd got this job, and I came back on Thursday. Started on Monday morning. Oh my god! So, the publishing company is called And Other Stories. We're going right. to be publishing a Swedish book ah. in uh, in February. First, the first Swedish or Scandinavian book they've published. So, do they want you to encourage Scandinavian reading clubs all over the UK? Well, actually, because the way it's interesting, the way they work is um they generally select books for publication through reading groups yeah and so people who speak the language a particular language will kind of meet to discuss books in that language Mm -hmm. and then they'll put forward recommendations to the 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 main publisher his name's stefan tobler but in my in my interview and in my application i was kind of talking about the book club yeah idea and uh, and I talked about my experience of running it and the way that direct contact with people mm. can play a really massive part. And I think that's what got me the job. To be Brilliant. Honest. So, uh, so yes, um, public engagement is not only a good in itself, but it can also get you jobs. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That's a fantastic note to end on. I'd like to say thank you very much to Nikki for coming along and enlightening us about the world of book clubs and how we can run our own. Nikki, would you like to say goodbye to our listeners? I would. Uh, goodbye. Thank you for inviting me to come and do this podcast. That's no problem at all. Do join us again next time for more clever people doing things. <laughs>